Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me first to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and then we will go uh, to John chapter 8 eventually. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 because it's going to lay the groundwork for us as we continue in our Christmas light series, our Christmas light series. By way of introduction, uh, a few weeks ago, I guess it was a month ago or so now, um, my family decided it's fall, we wanted to get out of the city, we wanted to go see kind of some leaves and the color changing going upstate a little bit. So we said, you know, we've never been to New Haven, let's go to New Haven, let's see Yale, you know, the architecture, the history, I like history. So we went and visited Yale, one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards. There's a college there named after him. He was a part of the founding of Yale many years ago, back around uh, the American Revolution, so in the 18th century. Um, And so we went and visited Yale, and fascinating. So I started doing some just research and Googling Yale and just wanting to learn some things about it. And I came across this article, and it was titled, The Most Popular Class Yale Has Ever Had. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that is. 1,200 students signed up for this class. It was one of those lecture classes that they didn't cap it. They just allowed students to sign up. And uh, a quarter of all students took this class. They offered it one time. Everybody signed up for it. Here was the title of the class, Psychology in the Good Life. The, the tagline was a class on happiness. That was the idea. The professor was giving lectures on how you can have happiness in this world. And, and in the interview and in the article, questions were asked to students, why did you take this class? And many of them responded, is because to get into Yale, I had to make so many sacrifices in life that now that I'm here, I'm just simply unhappy. That I, I want to find balance in life. I want to find a better way to live my life because now that I am here, I'm just exhausted and the expectations that are on me and I just want to figure out how to be happy. And the truth is, I think not only for Yale students, but I would imagine for many of us, this would be a class that if it was offered, I'd be like, hey, out of curiosity, if nothing else, I want to take this class. And so I I doubt I'll ever get asked to go and lecture at Yale. But if I did, here's how I would teach this class. So that's kind of the idea of today's sermon is, is from God's word, how would we approach the idea of psychology and the good life? How would we approach the idea and the question of happiness in this life? Now, I promise you I'm going to attempt to answer that question, but at first, it's not going to sound like a very happy answer. The road we got to walk on is to understand why are we, to some degree, biblically speaking, what does the Bible say about why we are in the condition we are and why are we not happy? So this brings us to Romans chapter 1. I want to walk through the text and hopefully help us understand some things. We're not going to go in complete details, but I want us to understand what Paul would say about why we are where we are in the condition we are in in this world. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's not a way to start a seminar on the happiness uh, question, but here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men or mankind, who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. Now, this is an important idea because when we just read uh, 1 John just a moment ago, 
there's this equation of light and darkness and whether you are in truth or not. And so oftentimes the biblical writers will use the language of truth in truth, understanding truth, metaphorically and illustratively as it conditions to both light and darkness. We'll even see that in this text. But the idea from the beginning is that there is a suppression of truth, Paul would say, by all of mankind. Now the question is how and why did that suppression take place? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So here's the argument, verse 19 God has made things clear to his creation about who he is, what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Universals, as Aristotle would say, that there's these universals about the world that we're trying to understand and attain of what is good and beautiful and true. And we see that these have been made clear, but although verse 19 says they've been made clear, Paul is arguing that we suppress these truths, these things that have been made clear, we suppress them. Let me me illustrate maybe a picture of suppression that might help. And here's the illustration that just makes sense to me. Is imagine you're in a pool and you have a beach volleyball or a beach ball of some, not necessarily volleyball, but a beach ball. And imagine you're holding the ball underwater. You can feel the tension of wanting to pop up above water, yes? And you you hold it down, and a lot of times when I'm in, the, in a pool, if I don't have a floaty or something, I may grab onto one of these, a ball, and just kind of, uh, you know, kind of sit on it and just, just be lazy and relax, and then I'll push it down, I'll let go, and it pops up above water. I really believe that this is an understanding of the spiritual state of all of mankind in sin, that we are suppressing the truth of God, that the truth about what God is and who he is is being pushed down under the water not to see the light of day. That although it exists, the truth exists, in our sin, Paul would argue, we are pushing it down under water and are not allowing it into the light. He would continue. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now, this is a tough pastoral statement, but it it needs to be understood rightly in light of who God is. A lot of times I get this question about why does good things, or excuse me, why does bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow this, this, this to happen to a good person? And here's here's the sobering theological truth, again, not a way to go on a seminar on happiness, but the, the foundational truth is that according to God's word, that there is no one good because we are all without excuse, meaning all of us, since the moment you and I had breath in our lungs, could see God's invisible divinity, his invisible attributes in all of creation, but due to our sin, we are suppressing that truth underwater. We're pushing the beach ball down underwater It's where we are not without excuse, meaning we have seen his goodness and have yet, for whatever reason, have chosen to suppress his goodness. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were what? Darkened. This is where we bring in the idea of light and darkness. The state of the human soul that is suppressing the truth of God in their sin 
It's described as darkness. It's described as what First John would say is that there is no light in you, darkness. And again, we just defined darkness last week as what? The absence of light. And so here, because we have suppressed the truth and it's like a beach ball that we are pushing, pushing down, then therefore light cannot do, come in and we are in darkness. But the text goes on. Those who suppress the truth, they claim to be wise, but yet they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Let me give another illustration of, the, of what this idea is like. I gave the illustration, one, of the beach ball that we're suppressing the truth. But the idea that we think that we are wise and God just has given us up to the earthly things only. Uh, get philosophical for just a moment. Charles Taylor, who's probably in his book, The Secular Age, which may be the greatest philosophical book of culture in the last 20 or 30 years of our generation, he calls what we've done the imminent frame. Now, let me define that for a second. It's not that confusing. It sounds fancy, but it's really not. But there are two ideas up until really the last 200 years in the world of the transcendent reality and the imminent reality, that which is spiritual, that which is physical, right? Imminent means close to you, right? Transcendent means far above you. And what has happened up until the last few hundred years is there was always a recognition in all religions and all cultures that there was a spiritual reality to our physical world. That doesn't mean every answer to that question was right, but at least there was an understanding. And in the Enlightenment, in our naturalistic world, in our Western culture, we've come in and built what Charles Taylor calls an imminent frame. And what an imminent frame is, is we framed in that which is physical only and separated it from that which is spiritual and eternal. So think of it like this. Imagine that we are here in this world, and specifically in this room, in the physical and we believe and acknowledge there's a spiritual realm up there. And let's just, for the sake of illustration, it's literally above us. And what we do is we ignore it by suppressing the truth, and we build a, we build a building around the imminent, fr- that's the frame, we build a roof. So imagine literally that outside of this roof is the spiritual world. And what he argues is what culture has done is we've been given an answer for everything right here in the physical world, and it's like we've built a roof blocking off the spiritual realm around us. We've literally suppressed the truth or blocked it off by building a worldview that is strictly explained by the physical world around us. This is known as the naturalistic, secular worldview. And what we would understand is Paul would say, all you're doing, I'm not surprised that that's happening, It's because you think in your wisdom, you know what's going on, but actually you're being foolish because you've exchanged what? The glory of the immortal, the glory of the transcendent, the glory of the supernatural, the immortal images of God for what? Something resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Basically, you've what? You've exchanged, as he would explicitly say it here, you changed from worshiping the truth of God simply for his creation. What we've done is we have said, instead of worshiping the creator who created us 
Instead, we've suppressed the truth in one illustration, or we've closed off him from our lives, and we give an explanation for everything just in the physical world in front of us. No wonder if, in fact, which I believe, and for the sake of argument, God does exist, which means there is a spiritual realm, which means there is a transcendent God who is above all of his creation, who has spoken everything into existence, and therefore, everything in existence owes its honor and worship unto that God. With that premise being believed, and then a culture who has blocked off that God from all aspects of their life, no wonder the most popular class in Yale's history is how am I happy? Because F.B. Meyer would say this, God has set eternity in our hearts, and man's infinite capacity cannot be filled or satisfied with the things of time and sense. In other words, because God has made you for eternity, you'll never be satisfied with that which is simply physical and temporary in this world. It's impossible. You will never be happy with the things solely in the imminent frame, in the physical world, because we've been created for a transcendent God who has spoken and given us life in the physical world, but yet, if we try to answer the question of happiness or joy apart from God, the reality is we'll never be able to answer the question. Let me illustrate it this way. We, we made a joke last week about how these it's pretty dark in here, and we're working on figuring out how to make this brighter so that we can see so imagine there's lights of various wattage, which there are. This TV is a lot brighter than those lights, and so it's kind of shining in various ways. You can see the context of light. And the truth is, this world offers, does offer some happiness. It offers some joy, and in some ways, some things make us happier than others. And in one sense, that light isn't as bright as this, and that thing doesn't give us much happiness as this. And yes, as we have the things in our world, it's like different lights of different wattage. Some are brighter than others, meaning some give us more joy and happiness than others. But when we build an imminent frame, meaning, meaning again, we have blocked off the world from the outside transcendent realm. When Christ shines his light into our life, which again, let, brings us to our text, actually for today, John 8, 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? Part of what it means is that when Jesus, Jesus says that I have come into this world of darkness and you think happiness is that light bulb or this light bulb, but in fact, what I have to offer in comparison is like your lights compared to the sun shining into this room. Right? When we look at this room and we go, man, it's hard to see sometimes. We need some more lights. We're working on spotlights. We're working on finding ways to get more light in this room. Think of that as an illustration to happiness and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. That the things of this world are like these light bulbs. But when you remove the imminent frame or you remove that which is separating, the roof which is separating us from God, in the sense, or an idea, and we let his light shine, it's like taking the roof off midday at 12 o'clock and the sun shining bright into this room. There is no comparison. If you and I are trying to answer the question of the good life, psychology and the good life, of what brings us satisfaction and joy and happiness, any answer that is within this world any answer that says this, 
that they exchanged the truth of God, or the, let's say it this way, the light of God for a lie, and we chose to worship and serve the creation, the creature, rather than the creator, then all we're doing is we're saying that light bulb makes us happy compared to the shining brightness of the sun in our life. There is no comparison. And this is what Paul's arguing in Romans chapter one, is that we have suppressed the truth. And what we've done is we have focused our entire lives simply on this world. But what Jesus does when he says, I'm the light of the world, and illustratively, it's like saying, I'm the sun coming to shine in your darkness. That I'm not just some light bulb, but I'm the sun that changes everything. It's no different than it's the middle of the night, and as morning comes, the sun comes up and changes everything. It brightens everything. No light bulb, no spotlight can do that, but only the sun shining on God's creation. In the same way, I very much believe when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. He is saying, I am like a sun that bursts through the roof that is blocking me off to shine deep in your hearts life and salvation and happiness and satisfaction. In the same way, F.B. Meyer, God has eternity in our heart and man's infinite capacity cannot be filled or satisfied with the things of time and sense. We can only be filled for with that which is eternal. Our light does not compare at all to the light that God has on our life. So two application and two truths that I want to challenge us with in light of that. First, Jesus is the light that shines in your life. Not complicated, pretty straightforward. There's an article from Harvard. They did a study of 4,000 millionaires in 2018. It's the largest study ever done in dealing directly with millionaires. And the simple question was asked, on a scale of one to 10, with each number being a multiplication of how much you have currently, how much do you need in order to be happy and, and that amount is then enough? So for example, if you've got a million dollars and you put two, then you're saying, I want double or three times or four times. 26% of the people put 10. Then I need 10 times the amount I have in order to be enough. Only 13% of millionaires put zero, meaning I'm good with what I have. Only 13%. I, I mean, there have been many times I've had this thought. Can we be honest for a second? If I had a million bucks, I'd be good to go. I've had that thought. But I, 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 don't, I think the reality is, is all of us, if we try to answer what is enough with a light bulb of this world, it'll never be bright enough. Because our hearts were created to have the sun shine in them. And when we look to this world, whether it be money, whether it be our careers, whether it be achievements, whether it be relationships, whether it be just this next promotion or this next accomplishment or this next possession, if I just had, if I went from 25 watt light to a 50 watt light, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be enough. But the truth is, God's created you for his light. Therefore, no light on earth will ever be enough. This is the truth of what we're trying to understand. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the light that your heart longs for. I am the light that will fill your heart. I'm the only light that has the capacity to do so. So might we see 
When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying he is the light that shines in your life. Not only salvation and hope, but also joy, happiness, and satisfaction. And then second, not only is Jesus the light that shines in your life, Jesus is the light that guides your life. We read this to begin our service, but it's a practical truth. Psalms 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I want you to think about the illustration here. This is written thousands of years ago. So thousands of years ago, guess what they did not have? Flashlights. They didn't have a light on their phone. They did not have spotlights. They did not have street lights. What they had for light was at best a oil-based candle. So imagine that you're in a context that says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We're not talking a thousand lumen light that can go like a mile and we can see all in front of us. We're talking about a little candle that might show us a few feet in front of us. And the illustration is not just that the word is a light to our feet, but it's a light that shows us just the next few steps that we have. A lot of times we come to God and his word and asking him to be a light that shines and says, hey, I need the next mile. And he says, I'm not going to give you the next mile. I'm just going to give you the next step. Will you trust me with that step? See, when they would have read this, they wouldn't have thought, hey, I have this whole roadmap and strategy plan mapped out that God has for us. But they would have read that verse and pictured a little candle lamp holding and going, you're only going to see five, ten feet around you. That's all you got. But here's the reality. It was once the light of God has shown in our hearts and filled us with his joy and mercy, and we trust the creator of the universe as the king of our lives, then we can trust that I only need to know what the next step is because I trust that he's got everything after that. Like his light is much greater than my light. And if it was, if it was up to me, then how would I even have confidence that what I think is the next step is the right step? And so instead, we allow the light of God when he says, I'm the light of the world and that in him we have life. What does it say in John 8, 12? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. That means we'll no longer be in darkness, but it also means that as we live in this life, we can trust his guidance in our life. Let me illustrate this. The best example I've had of maybe what this might feel like is one of my hobbies is camping and outdoor activities. And so a few years ago, I went to Ohio and did a wilderness survival kind of weekend training thing. And one of the activities we had to do was we had to navigate this five-mile navigation course, primitive navigation, all in the dark, pitch black, raining, and all we had was a headlight or the headlamp on top. That's all all we we had. We had to navigate these 30 points over five miles, and all we had were different compass points. And so all we could see was the compass in front of us, and we had a partner. And what what we'd have to do is once one of us had found the bearing of which way we wanted to go, the other partner would go up ahead as far as I could see that partner, make sure that he's on the bearing. I would tell him to stop because he couldn't go very far because I couldn't see very far. And then I would walk up to him. I'd make sure our bearing's right. He'd go a little bit further. It was literally about here to the door. For five miles, we did this for hours in the dark. And in the same way that in the darkness that is our lives at times, in the darkness of the world around us, when we're going, God, I'm lost out here in the woods. I know you have markers of where you want me to be, but I don't know where those are. And the marker, all it was, 
was uh, about three inches marked on a tree. And we had to find that in the dark, in our bearings. And it, we had to take small step after small step to make sure we didn't, we couldn't see it way out there. All we could see was right in front of us. And we take a little step and a little step and a little step, trusting that little light to guide us as long as we stayed on the path. No matter what got in our way, because there's many times water got in our way. But if you go around and get off your bearing, you could then mess up and be way off five miles down the road. So you had to go through whatever obstacle was in your way and you had to stay on that bearing. Similarly, sometimes when God's guiding us and we come to these little obstacles, we feel the need to go, he must have messed up here. Surely he meant for me to go over here. Surely he wouldn't have asked me to go through this creek. It's 34 degrees and it's cold. I gotta walk through this? But the truth is, when we trust God as the light that shines in our life and the light that guides our life, then we walk with him and we trust his goodness in our lives. I want to close with us reflecting on the primary truth, though. Going back to this idea that Jesus is the light that shines in our lives. You know, when we think about this question of happiness, notice happiness is an emotion. Happiness is a feeling. Joy may be a better word. You know, even satisfaction, we use that word a lot here at New Hope that we believe in Christ, he fully satisfies us. When we begin to think about this idea, this is for me very much not a mental only truth. Yes, I do believe that in God's word, he's a light that shines and allows me to see truth. That allows, I believe that light and truth are often connected. We saw that in 1 John. That God's word is a light to our path that guides us with his truth. But I also believe the reality that when it comes to happiness and joy and satisfaction, that God has created us with not only as mental beings, but emotional beings. And so when I talk about the light shining in our life, for me, that's not just a theological idea. It's not just an ideological idea. It's not just a mental belief or a logical uh, a connection of truths. But for me, it, it's very much a joy thing. It's very much, I believe, that and all the light bulbs in this world, all the things in creation that bring me happiness and joy, and there are plenty of them, and I'm grateful for them. My family, I'm so grateful. They are joy in my life. You are a joy in my life. Good food is a joy in my life. There are a lot of things in creation that God's given us good joys. The point isn't that they're evil or they're bad. The point is they're nothing compared to the sun. Do you understand the point I'm making? And Jesus says, I am the light of your life. And so here's what I want us to do in reflection today. I want us to spend some time meditating on this truth. We're not just gonna rush through this response time, but I want us to meditate on this truth. And here's what I want your prayer to be. If this is true for you, go, God, I need you to be the joy of my life. Not only do I need my mind to comprehend your truth, I need my heart to feel your truth. Let me say that again. That our prayer today and my prayer for you is not just that your mind would comprehend what I'm saying, that Jesus is the light of the world, but your heart would feel that it is true. And I wanna encourage you to press in. And I wanna encourage you just to go, God, I don't feel it. I, I need you to break into my darkness heart. I need you to bring your joy into my emotions. I need your joy to come into my life. Because here's the truth for me. 
Yes, I believe in Jesus because of philosophical reasons, meaning I think, it, I think the truths of Christ make the most sense of the world that we have. Yes, I believe in Jesus because God's word has convicted me and has shown and I believe it to be true. But let me tell you the number one reason I believe in Jesus is simply because my heart can feel him as true. I know that's subjective, but I also believe it's a reality is that the spirit of God, Romans 8 says, comes and dwells in our hearts if we are children of God. I can feel his comfort and love in the same way I pray that my children can feel my comfort and love in their lives. And so I encourage for you today, let your response be, Jesus, I need to feel you close. I need your light to penetrate deep into my soul and let me know that you're there. Would you bow with me and close your eyes? And I want to guide us in a time of meditating on that truth. Spend a time just meditating, asking God to do that. So let's just take a moment and remember what we read in 1 John earlier, that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, then if we confess our sins unto him, that the light of Jesus will shine into our hearts. And so we understand Jesus because of Romans chapter 1. In our sin, we're suppressing the truth. We are closing our lives off to you. And there is nothing we can do to bring light into our life. But in your salvation, you come and you remove the suppression of that beach ball that's underwater and we pop up above water to see light and to see truth. And in the same way, I believe, when we put our faith and trust in you, you allow our hearts to come to life, to pop above that suppression, to pop above the water, to see life, to see light and truth. And I believe our hearts are longing for that. But in your salvation, you allow that which is holding and suppressing the truth down to pop up to allow us to see what is truly true in this world. And so Jesus, first and foremost, I pray for hearts in here that are being suppressed in sin, that they would confess sin, that you be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and allow us, allow your light to shine in the darkness of our hearts so that we could see the truth and that we could feel the truth. Because God, you are not just an idea. You're a person, a person that draws near to us. So I pray for every person in here, and I pray now that as they meditate on this, they would cry out from the depths of their heart, Jesus, please shine your light into my soul. Shine your light into my soul. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. As the psalmist says, as a dry and weary land where there is no water, in the same way someone longs for water in the desert, I long for you, Jesus. Let our hearts long for you, Jesus. Cry out to him. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays. 
at 164-2 Goffles Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.